Hello, Bonsai friends. This is not Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai. This is Carmen Leskovianski, and welcome to episode 64 of Little Things for Bonsai People, the podcast. And this time I am joined by my co-host, Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai. Hey, Evan, what up? Hey, how's it going? I'm glad that it's not me. You had to clarify <laughs> that right at the beginning. I thought it was me giving the intro, but I was... I, I thought I made so the wrong assumption. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for uh, uh, thanks for covering that covering that one for me. I think yeah, uh, no problem. <laughs> and uh, today we have a special guest, John Eads from Left Coast Bonsai. How you doing, John? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Glad to be mm-hmm. here. Uh, so let's see. Today's topic is obviously John and Left Coast Bonsai. We're going to talk a little bit about field growing and what the future holds for Left Coast. But before we get into that, we do need to mention that our podcast is sponsored by our amazing patrons over on patreon.com slash little things for bonsai people. Head on over there and become a bonsai best bud and hang out in the discord with all of these amazing people. We're going to start off the list with Tori Solis, Vicky Auth, Boyd Snellgrove, Ricky Ruins, Joshua Bentley, Snappy Chappers, Joel Jenkins, Justin Knight, Backyard Bonsai Australia, Ben Crean, Green Witch Gardens, Taylor Peacock, Chase Pertweet, Austin Adkins, Karen Cogswell, Ryan Giordano, Louis Torres, AC Castle, Bonsai Marine, Jazz Potts, Chris Fassoon, Timothy Arsenal, Randy Bennett, Victrina Ridgeway, Laurence Bonsai Yard, Nate Murray, Nancy Hoffman, Joshua Roth, thanks Joshua Roth for sponsoring our show, J.M. Stewart Woodworking, Warehouse Rat, Dave N., Varys Bonsai, Sean Seaman, Gilbert Juarez, and David Benton. Oh boy, he just said something in the Benticini. Discord about this. David <laughs> Benticini. Uh, and special thanks to our specimen buds. Unruy, oh my God. Un- Unryun. Unryun and Bill's Bayou. Matt, please fix that. Cut that bad part out. No, it's I'm okay. going to redo that one because I want Matt to fix that. No, I don't want to be embarrassed. No. Just go uh, with it. Just go with it. Okay, fine. And another special thanks to our sponsor, Joshua Roth Tools. And we can't go much further without thanking our editor, Matt O'Donnell. He makes us sound smart, cleans up our audio, makes it enjoyable to listen to. Go over to mattodonnell.com to fill out a contact form to start your own podcast or audio engineering project with him. He is a set bassist living in Nashville, Tennessee, and is just an all-around awesome guy. It's in the script. Evan usually says it every time. It's my turn. (laughs) Lovely. But yeah. (laughs) Thanks for uh, thanks for going Ooh. through that. You might have to do that more often. It's uh, yeah, that's uh, a that's lot. a lot of words. I usually go a lot faster on the Patreon list, but I'm I'm not used to it, so I gotta yeah. work my way up. I gotta yeah. get them memorized so that next next trivia um, we, podcast, you know, I know everybody. We're gonna have to do something with uh, with video in the future where yeah. I can just put the names on the on the screen. But you know, I don't mind saying it for now. Like I said, anyway. Um, so John, let's yeah. let's crack into uh into you. How 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 did you get who into the bonsai? Heck are you? Yeah, who are you? <laughs> and what are you doing on our ship? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what do you want to know? I'm uh, an open book. Well, mostly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> tell, take us uh, from the beginning, I guess. So what what intrigued you to get into bonsai? Mm, well, let's see. I grew up in the plains of West Texas. Uh, you'll probably hear my accent coming through every once in a while. Um, and there were there weren't trees in Texas at that part of Texas. Uh, it was prairie as far as the eye could see, and uh, it's sort of like uh, how far can you see out on the marine? You know, it's like how many nautical miles can you see before the land pulls away from you? It was a similar thing in the 
<laughs> in the prairie. So, uh, so I think uh, when I moved out to Portland, I guess it's been 15 years. Uh, mm. I was just completely enamored by trees. Uh, trees everywhere, trees here and there, uh, mostly um, mostly conifer, mostly dug fir, but a good mix of conifer and deciduous. And so, yeah, just became completely enamored by tree landscapes um, and water. We didn't have water in Texas either. So, and, yeah, just kind of uh, really, you know, a lot of people have the story of, of bumping into bonsai pretty early, but I actually didn't bump into bonsai until about five years ago, six years ago. Um, I, someone gave us a membership to the Japanese garden and I happened to be there on the same weekend as the BSOP meeting was doing a, or the BSOP club here in Portland was doing a, uh, they were doing their spring show and, um, they, yeah, they used, they used to collaborate with the Japanese garden to do a spring show and they were doing some demos and Lee Cheeto was there. And anyone that's met Lee and Cheadle knows that um, he will draw you in with his kindness and won't let you get away. So <laughs> I was just enamored by him. He drew, uh, we had two kids and, or have two kids, but they were little at the time and just really, you know, grabbed them in and, in, and you know, really engaged with them and really got down to their level. And I think he was uh, wiring up her Cummins Nana at the time. And it was just, fascinating to watch and then see the trees on display and be able to talk to people that were, uh, you know, that were interested in bonsai. And so then I just kind of, Lee invited me to the club and I went to the club and I think like about 90% of bonsai people, I fell down a big, deep rabbit hole and, uh, deep into space of, you know, what is going on. And I started going to club meetings at that time. Uh, Ryan was doing his year intensive. Ryan Neal was doing his year intensive with BSOP. And so I stepped into my first club was, I think, the third or fourth uh, intensive that Ryan taught, which was sort of like being dumped out into the ocean, you what? know, not even knowing what a bonsai was to sitting in an intensive uh, class with Ryan. And so it was just like completely overwhelming. Uh, but then followed up with that pretty soon was the, um, I don't know, what was the conference called? The BSOP conference, uh, rendezvous, the rendezvous happened. Hey, hey, hey. And that's, uh, so I signed up for a few classes. I took one from Dave DeGroote and one from Michael. So that's where I met Michael. And in that class, it was a Hemlock class and Andrew was just super kind. And we really got to chatting a lot and they invited me to the yard. So I started going to the yard, uh, just kind of volunteering on the weekends and stuff and then that sort of turned into, at the time I was uh, running a wood-fired pizza food cart and the winters are always really slow. So we're always kind of looking for something to do. I'm always looking for something to do in the winters. And so I just started spending a bunch of time in the winter over at Michael's yard and uh, just really fell in love with that whole thing and really came to, you know, honor Michael and Andrew and just see the awesome stuff they were doing. And then kind of through that, they started talking about, you know, does an apprenticeship look something like what you'd want to do next? And then we kind of jumped into that. So I think I was about a year and a year and a little into seeing my first bonsai to then becoming a full-time apprentice. I did that for a two and almost a half years. And then I've been out here for about two and a half years. So that broke broke out of the apprenticeship and then have started this my own little thing here. Yeah. Awesome. Um 
And so it's it's interesting because I, I've been able to actually visit your your nursery and and your all your grow fields and stuff and see what you're what you're doing out there. Um, and it's interesting to see someone who goes into an apprenticeship and then uh, chooses to go and start their own nursery, uh, specifically a uh, a grow nursery. Not many people do that from what I've seen. I've seen a lot of people go to yeah, try to go yeah. straight to, te- to teaching bonsai and traveling, uh, whereas you kind of chose a different route with it. Was there a reason uh, that you decided to go grow nursery? Uh, no, I mean, I think um, I just am super passionate about growing trees. I can't get back from, I can't get, you know, away from the one, two, three-year-old seedling type stuff and doing the initial work, the initial bin. So, so it's a huge passion of mine. And also just uh, felt like, especially at my time at Michael's, felt like there was a, a huge gap in our learning and our understanding as a as an American bonsai community of what, you know, what it takes to create trees that look like they were collected in the mountains to create quality show trees. And so, yeah, just, just wanting to kind of probe at that gap in our understanding and see what, you know, what other people were doing amazing things, learn from them, and then try to expand that to, you know, I would hope that I would can, you know, be one chapter in a, in a long story of seeing bonsai, the bonsai growing community in America turn into something that looks like what the Japanese are doing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just wanting to kind of plug myself into that, learn from the amazing people that are doing good stuff here in America, try to learn what I can from people overseas that have been doing it a lot longer, you know, generation uh, nurseries in Japan, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, just trying to figure out my place in that. And I think, you know, the most people come out of apprenticeships and, and go kind of into the teaching, uh, traveling, working on um, nice trees. It, you know, it, I think it, part of that is just that uh, bonsai, especially in Japan, but also in America, is pretty specialized. So people people train, like, you know, in, in Michael Hagedorn's yard, we're, we're trained to finish trees and really, like, put, the, put that last mile on the tree that last bit of detail. And so, you know, my training is in that. And so I think people just kind of naturally go into teaching and using that skill set when they get out, you know. So so I kind of had to buck the trend and figure out, you know, what are the teachers do I need to pull into my, you know, circle in order to learn some of these other skills. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'll say that, um, I mean, you went from like no plant experience to running a nursery in like five years. And that's, crazy um (laughs) what you're doing a really good job and i'm uh really happy that there's another grower out there because they're just looking for bonsai material can be so tricky and there's just not a whole bunch available of like you know of pre-bonsai that's actually good quality material especially here in the states and so i mean unfortunately while you were apprenticing uh uh, telperian farms went under because of that giant wildfire out here and right. hopefully, I mean, it, a lot of trees have been rescued from there, even despite all of that. But that was like our number one source for, you know, grown material. And so I'm happy that you're here to kind of fill in that gap um, after that huge disaster. Yeah, I think the West Coast especially has had, uh, you know, a long history of, you know, some fairly good nurseries, some fairly large nurseries, uh, specifically focusing on bonsai. But, you know, those, a lot of those started in, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, even, and people are beginning to age out. 
You know, yeah. I know John Muth at Bonsai Northwest, you know, has retired and he sold the location and then he ultimately retired. So he was growing a bunch of material and then, you know, Telperion burned. They lost all their material. And then there were some, I know there's some California growers that either faded out or, you know, aged out or were done, you know. And so, yeah, the, it seems kind of like they're, there's a lot of opportunity at this at this juncture because, you know, there's not a whole lot of stuff happening, but there's also like kind of a too big of a gap. You know, there's too, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the thing I'm running into is I would love to fill that gap, but I can't make the trees grow any faster. You know, I can't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so speaking of having that nursery, I mean, starting from, you know, just the stock, just starting from what you feel like essentially is just you know, seedlings. So you're, I mean, it almost looks like nothing at the very beginning, right? So, right. So, I mean, how how does that nursery feel from the beginning, very beginning? Like, I'm sure it's. Inf- I mean, I kind of run a, a similar op- operation, um, it? and it's a little nerve wracking. I can get that, but how does it feel for you, in particular, when you started up uh, Left Coast? Yeah, I mean, uh, like Carmen mentioned, I didn't have any uh, nursery experience. I had. I had done some like home garden type experience. So growing plants, nurturing plants, but nothing on a commercial scale. And then to, to just jump into, we have about an acre and a half in production and jumping into that was, yeah, just a whole new like ball of wax or a box of kittens or whatever, you know, just trying, (laughs) trying to like figure out, okay, there's a lot of logistical things. What do I do? How do I get water? How do I get nutrient? What does nutrient look like? How do I get, you know, these, these logistic things, but then also like plant disease things. Uh, And that's all just on top of, you know, how do I make this seedling turn into a, you know, a a 25 year old tree? What's, what's the first step, you know? And so I, uh, right off the bat, I went to uh, work with Jonas for a week and, you know, his wisdom was always like, well, the good thing about growing things from seed is that you have to figure out how to do the first year in the first year. And then you have another year to figure out what to do in the second year. And then you have another year to do, figure out what to do the third year. And in some ways it's been like that. Like I, okay, every time I come to the next year, I figure out what to do. You know, I, I have a little time to figure out what, what I need to do, but there's also a big, just a big, like, well, I don't want to, you know, turn back five years later and say, well, I wish I would have done this five years ago, you know? So I'm, I'm trying to uh, keep myself like up and learning on figuring out how to not, you know, there's always going to be regrets. There's always going to be like, I wish I would have done it that I wish I would have put more of these in the ground and less of those. But, but it, you know, I really am trying to avoid having big, big issues like that where I, where I wish I could go back and, you know, undo what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so hard to foresee. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, yeah. you know, I hate to, I hate to feel like, well, I'm going to go uh, learn from other people and see what other people are doing so that I can try to avoid their mistakes. But honestly, like, I hope that people come and do that to me and see what, what mistakes I've made that they can avoid. Cause you know, I, I'm trying to, trying to go see what other people are doing, trying to see where, okay, it seems like bonsai people, like uh hobbyists, all sort of come to a point where they get overwhelmed with the volume of trees that they've acquired. Yeah. And so that's kind of like a, a <laughs> thing. And I, I feel like that's sort of the same thing with commercial growers. Like it's really easy to, uh, today I just put 500 black pine seeds in to soak 
to propagate. It's really easy to do that. It took me like five minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. But then if I'm decandling 500 three-year-old black pines or five-year-old black pines or I'm doing initial bending or reponding, you know, that that's where the like the train begins to take off and we, you know, we become overwhelmed. So I, I feel well, kind of like if I look at some of the, you know, the growers in the U.S., that have made a stab at this, it seems like everybody kind of comes to that same, like, okay, I'm totally overwhelmed now. The trees are too big. The weeds are crazy, you know? And so, I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to trying to avoid that uh, kind of inevitable curve that everyone seems to be taking. Yeah. That's when you just have a really big clearance sale. It's like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I kind of oh, talked no. about... I kind of talked about this at one point. It's like, in some ways, it's disingenuous to do that because I don't want to flood the market with low quality material right yeah but then at the other hand it's like okay we just don't have enough material so it's also disingenuous for me to make a big burn pile and burn everything that i don't think is you know 100 percent or 90 percent right and so yeah i'm just kind of like a little bit of a catch-22 yeah we've had this conversation i think a couple of times just i know you and me i think we even chatted with evan about it at one point that let's just like it's, what's what's good material and what's bad material? What's good material yeah. and yeah. how do you not put out bad material? But you have to put out material good and bad because people are gonna work on stuff anyway. You know, like and, uh, it's just it's yeah, it's that's rough. Right, right. I don't want to like uh, water down my quality, but I also don't want to gatekeep. You know, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. I mean, well, if, if you can't play in the big leagues with a $5,000 tree, then maybe you should just go do something else. You know, that's just, that's right. disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and I think this has come up a few times in the past, um, maybe even on our show as well, where it's just like with those maybe inferior feeling trees, there's still material to be learned on by <laughs> true beginners. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, and that's kind of how I look at it. And that's in a way how my nursery kind of operates with that it's like i am producing the trees that have the long-term potential that i will you know keep in the ground for a much longer period of time or i'll you know if they get dug up they will be allowed to just run and uh be cut back and then wired and cut back again and so on and so forth but then there's the ones that just come up and i'm like this one would be great for a bonsai 101 course real quick Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of how i've mitigated that with you know some of those uh materials but um what, is that something that you think that you would offer, John, or is your nursery a little uh, too far away from where you could be able to do that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm. I am. I'm building the airplane as I'm flying and trying to figure out. Um, <laughs> well, I kind did of see what... you do a class the other day. I just remember that. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? I did see you do a class the other day. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to do that. a bunch of classes, and I want to talk a little more uh, a little later about some of the the study groups that I want to do. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I am doing some classes um, and I'm, you know, the BSOP club has a couple of like 101, 102 type classes that I'm trying to involve myself with and really trying to like get material, started material into people's hands. Um, so really trying to work with the club to do that. I'm trying to work with other clubs to get material into their hands. So yeah, I will be doing some of that. Um, but I also... You know, if we think about the trees being on a, uh, you know, one is a seed and 10 is a show, you know, I think I mostly want to do from like one to eight and then turn the trees over to someone like um, Michael or Andrew or Carmen. 
to do that last mile. Um, you know, Telperion, they, they sort of did like one to four or five or three, you know, they, they like really set up good bones, but then, um, you know, didn't, didn't do much of the branching or ramification, any of that work. And so, you know, I, I think for the most part, I want to take the trees a little bit further. I want to use a little more of my, my apprenticeship training to push the trees a little bit further. Um, and part of that is I think that there are some great nurseries that are coming on board that are doing, um, you know, what Telperion hoped to have done. Um, I think Dylan, uh, Ferreria at Cedar Rose in, uh, outside of Sacramento is doing a really good job of like really producing quality material that, you know, that is kind of the baseline, good movement, good, good roots. And then he's releasing them into the wild, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, I think, um, I want to distinguish myself just a little bit further by, by taking that next mile tree and, and just pushing it, you know, pushing branches onto it, pushing ramification onto it, getting, getting that next level of product out to people, you know? Yeah. Making, so, oh, go ahead, John. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, no. So it's like, I don't know what, you know, what this category looks like. Is this, is this a, a pre bonsai, a potential bonsai? Like m- maybe there's another word for this thing. That's like, uh, you know, Andrew or Michael or Carmen or you takes this tree, does a workshop with it. And then we actually see it in a regional show in three or four years, you know? Yeah. Mm. That's my favorite level of material to work with. So I will, I will be purchasing lots of trees from you, John. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know it's like, it's like the stuff that Michael has here in the yard. That's like one or two years away from going into a bonsai pot. And then from there, like another two or three years away from being like show ready. Yeah, like, exactly. It's not quite pre bonsai, but it's not quite bonsai. It's just like. Limbo uh, yeah. bonsai. <laughs> we a, yeah. We need a new word for it. Right. It's like un, underdeveloped bonsai or, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, exactly. So that, I think, you know, if if I'm pushing myself out 15 years and kind of looking at what I really want to be working on uh, and what I really want to be producing for people, it's that, you know, it's that someone can call me up and, you know, get something that that is largely on the way, you know? So there hasn't been one really good touch or two really good touches on the roots and branches, but there's been, you know, 15 or 20, you know, that there's a real dedication to making those, you know, filling those gaps. Yeah. I think one thing that would be uh, pretty awesome too, is in the future, as we get more grow nurseries established like yours, that whenever a club needs workshop material for a visiting artist, that's, that's kind of, like that's what you're making me think of more and more as you say, like you want that, that bone side, that's just like a next step, uh, can be polished up or, or brought right. through. And it's like, oh yeah. Uh, so-and-so club, uh, on the West coast that you have that, you know, all right guys, here you go. You know, so that would be so much better for the bone community overall. Um, cause I get that phone call every once in a while from bone clubs down here in the South. And I mean, I wish I could grow faster and get better material right. <laughs> over here, you know, to fill that gap. But it does. Yeah. There's a lot of prospects for that as well. That's exciting. And yeah. Then, and, you know, particularly in the Pacific Northwest and in the Portland, Oregon area, there are, I don't even know how many thousands of acres of nursery material. And so like our club is, they can find very cheap, you know, Shimpaku gallons with a Sharpie sized trunk with nothing done to it. Like that, that material is very easy to come by. 
yeah. uh, for us. And, you know, mugo pines, they can't find black pines, but they can find mugo pines or they can find, you know, they can find some deciduous material, some maples, you know. And so I don't want to recreate that wheel. I'm not trying to compete with Isley, you know, with a million acres in production or whatever they have, you know, I'm not trying to compete with them. I want to, I want to find that thing that like, okay, what is when Bjorn is doing a, uh, you know, a, a workshop at a uh, conference, you know, what material is he going to be really looking for? What's that, you know, what's that thing that, that, that really is going to make him happy to, to see like, Hey, let's, you know, let's do these Atlas cedars that, that have had 12 years of actual work on them. And then we are going to push them to the next level, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you know, you see, I mean, this is no fault to any clubs. I'm not saying this to be, you know, a certain way It's just like some of the materials you see in those, those club meetings and, uh, and demos and stuff. I mean, it, I've seen a good couple of trees and I'm just like, wow, that was an awesome demo tree. But it, yeah, like you said, it could be just your regular, just pulled it from a landscape nursery. And mm-hmm. you, you know, like you said, the, the roots are not there. The movement's not really there. And the, the artist really has to push it to that next limit. And that tree's really going to have to be pushed that much harder. Um, so I, I, yeah, I do remember hearing you mention earlier that uh, you were talking about good roots and good movement, good movements. And that's something that I think I've, I've talked about in a couple of episodes past. It's, it's been a while since I think I've talked about uh, developing young, young plants for, for bonsai. So kind of give us a little bit of a, like a readout on how you deal with roots to get nice quality roots. And why is that important? Because a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't even realize that. Yeah. Yeah, so we approach, uh, you know, kind of deciduous and conifer in, in, you know, basically two different ways. But I think the biggest, the biggest similarity is that I want high touch for the first couple of years. I'm repotting every year for three years or four years. I'm really getting, because the tree is, you know, a black pine ceiling is fine with everything getting cut off and then it will regrow everything. And so as long as it's in an environment that it's not going to, you know, die, desiccate or whatever. As long as you give it the aftercare you need to, you can pretty much run all of these young plants through the ringer. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, before the concrete is set by year four or five, they were really, we're really doing high touch. So with, with, uh, conifers, black pines particular or pines particular, we're repotting, uh, you know, we're bare rooting, scratching soil out, getting radial roots established, trying to trying to build, you know, fill the gaps in on the radials, um, you know, getting a nice, the, the nice shape of the, of the roots so that it's not, you know, we don't have a cone shape or a pyramid shape, but we also don't have a, a you know, a flat plate or even worse, an up flared root plate, you know, yeah, so we've got it. like a, you know, a slightly down, uh, kind of like the cup of your hand, um, shape. And so, yeah, d- getting that, like working on the black pines or, or pines, especially in the beginning, you know, junipers kind of like grow roots out of wherever you want to. So those aren't as big of a thing. And then deciduous, you know, most of the time we can thread those through a washer. So we take a one, one year old seedling and we run it through a, a either a metal um, washer or a tile. And then, you know, as the root grows, it girdles above. And then it will, if you have soil above the tile or the washer, then it'll send out a, a new root system. And then at some point by year two or three, you can sever off the lower root system and, and rebuild the root system from above the tile. So that's a technique I almost exclusively use on most 
um, deciduous. Uh, some things, uh, Korean hornbeam doesn't really like that done to it. Uh, there's a couple of like fussy uh, species that don't really like to, like to do that. So, you know, with them, we just have to follow the normal, like comb the roots out, repot it every couple or every year for a couple of years, just really like focusing on that. And then, yeah. And then at the same time, like we're leaving no, nothing without movement. Everything is getting movement from the, from the soil up, you know, so, you know, by the time it's pencil sized, I want everything to have a bend in it. Mm-hmm. So that, that point is where the concrete is starting to set at pencil and it's already set by Sharpie. So anything that's Sharpie or bigger, I think, uh, Isley talks about the rule of thumb and that's mostly a cutting thing. If we cut anything off bigger than our thumb, then it goes in the burn pile because the scar will be too big on a Japanese maple. Good. Um, and so the that rule of thumb, I'm sorry. I just, the yeah. rule of thumb, it's the thumb size. That's hilarious. Yeah. And I'm really sorry that I can't, uh, think of his name right now. He's the, <laughs> he's the Azalea guy at, uh, Isley. Oh, it's, um, oh my God. Joe Harris. Joe Harris. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Joe Harris. Yep. Yeah. That's his thing is, you know, if, if they're walking around, cause this is off, off topic, but if they're walking around and they have to cut anything bigger than the thumb off, then it goes in the burn pile because it, it's aesthetically unpleasing. It'll make a scar. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I kind of, I do that with pruning, but I also, that's the size that if the branch is set to that size, it's really, really difficult to, to maneuver. And so mm-hmm. trying to catch that stuff before it's that size. And, and obviously there's going to be sacrifice branches and stuff that will get bigger than that, but they're going to be removed. But anything that's planned to be set on, so a trunk line or a branch, I try to get it before it's Sharpie size. Cause then I can, then I am in control of where it goes and what it does rather than just trying to figure out what I can do with the material after the fact, you know, catching my tail. So I'm trying mm-hmm. to get that done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in those first three or four years, I find it really critical to set roots, repot every year, and then just begin to work on trunk line. And then as we start getting into branches, you know, as the trunk line starts developing and we're doing some cutback, we can, you know, start, start developing branches, but mostly the work I'm doing is, is root flare and trunk line. This podcast is supported by Bonsai Bar, the beginner bonsai workshop popping up in breweries all across the Northeast. Bonsai Bar is two hours of tiny tree goodness disguised as a night out with friends. Come grab drinks, create a new tree, and watch as your friends and family get the bug for bonsai. Bonsai Bar is always looking for teachers and assistants, and you listen to this podcast, so you're probably already qualified. Bring your knowledge out to the bar. Apply today. Find event tickets, contact info, and more at bonsaibar.com. And uh, when you say repot, uh, for our listeners to kind of understand that, um, do you do you dig them out of the ground and then replant them, or are you doing some uh, bag growing, or a little bit of both? Yeah, so I actually don't have very much of the ground, especially right now, because I want um, I I think that once we put it in the ground, we're push on the gas. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen the, I think it's the 4th of July or maybe it's a new year celebration in somewhere in Alaska where they have these cars drive off the cliff and then everybody's at the bottom of the cliff and they see <laughs> these cars. <laughs> so it's probably, you know, a 200 foot cliff and everybody's at the base of the cliff and they just take a, a two by four and wedge it into the gas pedal and yep. let the car go, you know. <laughs> what so if you analogy. haven't seen this, if you haven't seen this, dear <laughs> listeners, please go online. Uh, I think it's yeah. a 4th of July celebration. It's somewhere in Alaska. I got some YouTube um, thing to do. Right, exactly. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So 
I sort of feel like it's the same way with the trees that we're we're jamming on the accelerator. And so if the tree is veering towards the cliff, it's going to go off the cliff. You know, we're we're accelerating the good stuff and the bad stuff. And so the ground is a tool to accelerate. And so I'm trying to only accelerate the good stuff. Yeah. So I really, um, so, you know, my oldest trees that I started from seed, I started at Michael. So I've got some four and a half year old trees. Yeah. Um, but only a few of them have gone in the ground because they're just not quite ready. They're they're still doing this aggressive root work. So they're in pots, either in four inch or gallon. They're in pots. And then they're just getting root work, root work, root work every year. And so I'm not putting them in the ground because I don't have to dig them out, you know. Yep. But this this season, so it's January now, um, in March or April or May, my hope is to shove a thousand trees in the ground that are finally ready to get the accelerator pushed. They have good root systems. They have trunk lines. They're starting to get branches. And now I just need acceleration to happen. I need, I need speed. <laughs> um, you got to go fast. I understand. Right. I got to go fast because, you know, now, now I don't need to have as much high touch on stuff. I can let it go. <laughs> now I, you know, I really, um, I really appreciate some conversations I've had with Michael lately about, you know, there's a, there's a finite amount of time that we can expect only good stuff to happen. If we put it in the tree, in the ground with 90% good, uh, eventually after a number of years, that's going to get ruined because we, we have to pull it back out of there and repot. We have to pull it up back out of there. And, you know, these branches are starting when, when they went in the ground, they're the size of a pencil lead. And after two years, now they're the size of a Sharpie. So either we're wiring on our hands and knees to get branches to go where we want them, or we're digging them out. And so, you know, this two to three year window, I think is kind of ideal. So, you know, two or, you know, let's just say three years out of the ground, working on stuff and then put them in the ground for one to three years and then pull them back out, do some work. And then they can either like, then they get, you know, sent off to a club, put them in a nicer pot or they go back in the ground. You know, it's like you, you either have to go to, re, you know, re-engineer camp or you can go on to see the world. Yeah. It's kind of. You know, that's kind of my idea is like, uh, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe they come in and out of the ground a couple of times before they go out, but, but yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to just full on shoot to the moon and, and just put them in the ground for 10 years. Um, cause I think that there's, yeah, we begin to develop problems. We begin to develop, you know, I, I use grow bags mostly. And so those grow bags are just going to fill with a, a wad of wood from the root systems. You know, after five or six years, you've got a three gallon bag of wood yeah. that has developed and that's just <laughs> that's not a tree that's it's that's a, a log <laughs> it's amazing i mean it's amazing some of the telperion uh scott spines that we had you know a five gallon they had five gallon bags so they're probably you know 14 inches wide and 14 inches tall or so maybe 16 inches um but yeah the the trunk was that size so the the trunk is bulging out the width of the bag and you <laughs> you dug it, and there is an elephant foot, an elephant leg size root poking out of the bottom of the bag. Oof. So that had to be sawzalled off. And then you tear off the bag, and the entire volume of the bag is trunk essentially. Uh, it's just fused, it's just a fused root mass. You know, yeah. crazy. And you know, being Scots pines, I think some of those actually survived that. You know, fine, yeah. no, no fine rooting at all, but they were able to survive that. But 
but yeah, that's kind of the extreme of like, okay, we probably would we probably would have wanted to catch that eleven years ago, you know, yeah, or whatever. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like once you put it in the ground, you have to actually go back to it and you know continue the work because otherwise you'll lose all of that effort you put in those first right, exactly. three or four years, and oof, mm-hmm. that would be. That'd be rough. Yeah. So you do use grow bags, though, when you put stuff in the ground. You're not just putting it in there with nothing around the root mass. Yeah, I am using grow bags, but, you know, I really, the Japanese don't seem to do any of that. And there's a couple of growers in Australia that don't do anything. They just go into sand beds or, you know, mm-hmm. soil beds. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm going to play around with it a little bit. I have some pumice grow beds, which is my... Uh, I learned that from Telperion. That was a great trick I learned from them. So I do do grow bags into a bed of pumice. So it's two by six, uh, 16 foot long, four foot wide. And then I can get, you know, 200 trees in that. Um, <laughs> and they're all in like softball size grow bags. Yeah. Uh, okay. But I am, I am this year going to just plant some stuff directly in it just to see what it does, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think like you could probably get away with just putting stuff straight in the ground if you have the right, you know, material in there. Because otherwise, if you're just sticking it right in the dirt, you're just that's just going to be a mess trying to repot something like that. But right, right, yeah, yeah. I think you have to have a fairly loose soil to if you're going to go into the ground. <laughs> yeah, and then you just have to, uh, you know, the the beauty of the bag or a basket in the ground is that the root system stays fairly close to the trunk. Yeah, no. Uh, but then can turn into a knot of wood, so you got to watch that. The the problem with planting it um, out of the bag is that the roots just go looking for nutrient, and so they right. they might it, you know you might have fine rooting a foot away from the trunk, and you need it three inches, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of but the if, oh okay. go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, but if you're repotting every two to three years anyway, probably both of those would be a fine mm-hmm. system, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, it's interesting at at the nursery that I'm operating. There's a lot of red clay here, and the red clay kind of yeah. takes uh, kind of takes care of the job of worrying about the roots going too deep for us. <laughs> so it's in it, yeah, it's it's a real thing. Well, we actually uh, we till our fields in row and then let and then mound it up, and then we'll 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 kind of basically just plant them like you would just a regular like fruit and vegetable kind of farm situation where we're okay, yeah, yeah, put them in the mound and then. The red clay is maybe a foot or so underneath that. So, uh, I mean, we do have issues with roots that do run long. Of course, that's going to happen. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I deal with a lot of, lot more deciduous stuff in my range. And uh, I find that cutting the roots to a certain extent, like like uh, one of, another grower that I talked with down here, he would go in like with the trident maples, for instance, and just cut the roots to the, the appropriate length on one side. For, uh, on one year and then go cut the other year. Like if you had those long giant oh, got it, got roots. It, right. Yeah, I know it sounds a little weird, uh, especially without imagery on it, but uh, just because those roots, like especially on maples, they're they're guilty of this. They'll run a really, really obnoxiously long root sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. They can sever that and force it to back bud on a root, basically, or back root. Uh, right, easy. right. Um, I've, had, I've had a lot of success with that, actually. Um, on deciduous trees, especially, and you know, and deciduous trees are easy to kind of get them to do that kind of thing. Uh, we don't, fortunately, we don't, uh, I mean, not fortunately, unfortunately, I don't get to grow a lot of conifers. The, at best, I get some, um, I get junipers like Shimpaku and uh, uh, Fumula juniper in the ground that grow pretty well for us. Uh, 
but ja- Japanese black pine does not like our soil. So it's, it's really cool to hear yeah. that you can grow those guys like that. Um, you can grow them a lot better than I could. That's for sure. Um, yeah. but yeah, one of my questions for you too, was, uh, when you're doing your potting and, and whatnot, uh, what soil medium are you using? Yeah. So I, um, I worked with Gary Wood. Um, he was the bonsai consultant for Telperion and he was a nurseryman for his entire career and then got into bonsai later. Um, and he's still active a little bit. Um, so I, he's on speed dial for me. I call him up all the time and we talk stuff. Uh, but my mix is I get a 50, 50 pumice and then some kind of organic. So it's either for us, we're, we're really close to Tillamook where the cheese factory is. So everybody knows Tillamook. Uh, so for us, it's usually a dairy compost or some kind of composted bark, something, you know, something that's got an organic component to it. And then I get a big load of pumice in addition. And so then I mix 50, 50 for my conifers. So then it's 25% uh, organic, 75%, um, pumice. Yeah. But you could use perlite or some other aggregate um, to to replace the pumice if, if you can't get pumice. But but yeah, for the most part, it's 50-50 on the deciduous and 75% aggregate and 25% organic on the on the conifers. And, uh, and even when they go into the ground, because uh, you're, yeah, you're exactly. using pumice beds, you, like you said, that's... That's yeah, but in the nifty. bags, in the bags of the baskets that then get set down onto the pumice beds or into the pumice beds, yeah, that's that same aggregate mix. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and this year I'm playing with uh, uh, a little bit more bark than I, I think last year was all um, dairy compost, and it got a little bit mushy. Um, <laughs> I felt like it was too fine, so I'm going with a little coarser, uh, like a pretty coarse bark mix, but. It's what a lot, of, you know, we rain, um, you know, nine months out of the year and then we are in drought for three months of the year. So I think, I think my area gets 60 something inches of rain. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a pretty free draining mix. So things don't just sit in water, you know? Yeah. yeah. At what point do you switch start do, or do you start switching any of your material over to like an Akadama pumice or is that? going to be like out of your hands up to the next person who gets the tree down the line no i think that that's um yeah i definitely have started switching some things over um i've started moving and i think it's kind of like when it goes into a quote real pot that's when mm-hmm. it that's when it gets and then it gets to be on the bench you know <laughs> it gets an yeah. it, it soil because <laughs> i think that there is a lot of uh you know there's a lot of nutrient there's a the way it holds nutrient differently and there's the way you know this, the water's mm-hmm. differently and the the root grows differently and the, the bifurcation is d- better so yeah at some point it's kind of like if it's you know out of the ground worked on for a couple of years then in the ground worked on for a couple of years and then when it comes back out of the ground and it's it's decided to go on to its new owner and it gets into a quote real pot then mm-hmm. yeah that's when it's going to go into more of a and it's the same uh, for me it's the same mix it's just instead of using organic it's akadama so it's 50 50 and 75 25 nice it's kind of the mix oh hey carmen did i tell you about bonsai central yet no i don't think you have oh i I think i might have mentioned it a few other times but it's going to be may 3rd through 5th in 2024 in st louis missouri it's basically 
the national show, but it's going to be Central America and it's going to be an awesome show with cash awards and prizes. Uh, there's going to be a professional bone size show and a kusimono show as well. Ooh. With the presentation during dinner with uh, for rewards and whatnot. But if you want to submit a tree, I think you have to submit two to four photos and you need a brief description of your tree and send it over to the contact form at bonsaicentral.com. That's bonsai-central.com. But there's going to be vendors there too. Do you know what vendors were included? Did you hear about that? Yeah, I heard that it's going to be something like 25 plus of the best vendors from around the country. So like including nurseries, potters, stand makers, tool suppliers, and all of that. But like specifically, I, I thought I heard that there was going to be American potters like Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Now Tochu Take is going to be there. Vicky Chamberlain, Eli Atkins of Waldo Street Pottery, April Grigsby, Roy Minari and Byron Merrick. Um, sellers of imported Japanese and antique Chinese pots are going to be there, too. That's amazing. I mean, there must be like a pretty good lineup for this show as far as like their headliners. There should be some really good bonsai artists. Do you have any idea who that might be? I think I might have heard about Bjorn, but there's some other ones, right? Oh, yeah. Bjorn's going to be there. Uh, Tyler Sherrod as well. Maria Hayek, uh, Andrew Robson, Maro Stenberger, and Young Cho. Oh. I think there's going to be workshops, show walkthroughs, critiques, all that stuff. Yeah, that sounds awesome. There should be somewhere to go on bonsai-central.com and you can fill out the opportunities to do workshops with these professionals. They have really great material, I've heard. It's going to be stuff like twisted junipers and and, and old fused maples and really awesome pieces of material for a Young's Cosimono class. So I think if you guys are interested, y'all should go check out bonsai-central.com and see if you can register for the show, sign up for workshops if they're still available. But I'd, I'll definitely be there this year. Awesome. That's sweet. Yeah, yeah thank you, uh, Bonsai Central, for sponsoring our show. Uh, you know, I was meaning to ask you much earlier on... Um, the species that you are having success with like what do you yeah. I know you mentioned a handful of of species um but what are kind of like your top species that you are working with you find that grow best for you got it yeah uh black pines do really well i i absolutely love scott's pines and i think if i could switch my entire yard over to scott's pines i probably would mm. um i don't find them to be as readily accepted as black pines for people and I think some people, especially in hot areas, you know, uh, black pines can grow in Puerto Rico, for example, but a Scots mm-hmm. pine won't. Yeah. And so I think in hot areas, it doesn't do as well, but um, I I feel like it, for me, does really, really well. So I'm trying to promote it, get it out to people. <laughs> it's so yeah. much easier, too. I mean, you only have to touch it like once a year, you know, you don't have to do the whole decandling and then, you know, all the the stuff you have to do with the black pine. Scots pine is yeah. much more straightforward. And I can do an aggressive cutback on a Scots pine that's 15 years old and I get thousands of buds, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh gosh, this is, you know, a black pine will do that kind of. A red pine's never going to do that. A white pine's <laughs> probably never going to do that. Mm. Shore pine's probably not going to do that. But uh, yeah, a uh, Scots pine's just like, okay, well, great. We'll just gr- grow here instead, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, pine. I just don't have to, I don't have to like think so hard about you know with a red pine i've got to be really protective about okay if i need a branch here i've got to get a branch there and i got to keep it there keep it alive and keep it from elongating too far uh but, but with the scots pine it's like well i'm just building a trunk line and when i need branches at some point i'm going to cut the trunk and then you know, i get a i get a branch wherever i want one you know mm-hmm. so yeah a lot of black pines black pines grow pretty well here um 
And then, uh, you know, Scott's Pines, a lot of, uh, I like Shimpaku. I really like working with them. I like what they look like, but we have such terrible fungus problems, uh, mm. here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So, you know, they're kind of like, um, I convinced myself every couple of years that I love them and I ramp up and do a lot of cuttings <laughs> and then I just like throw up my hands and scream and uh, we have borers really bad too. Um, oh yeah. So between the borers and the, uh, yeah, the fungal is just like, oh man, is it even worth it? But yeah, I just, I keep going back to them because I love them so much, but yeah. yeah. So, and I mostly do Itoagawa, but I do Kishu as well. Uh, and then on the deciduous front, uh, I really like a couple of the crab apples. I'm growing Roslo and Zumi and did a bunch of, uh, tridents. I really like tridents a lot. I like, uh, you know, they're kind of the Scots pine, in my opinion, of, of the deciduous world. You know, you cut them where you want them and you, they, you know, they oh, yeah. dig in scars and then, you know, a couple of years later, the scars are gone. And <laughs> I like the exfoliating bark a lot. Um, yeah. So that I'm heavily invested in that. And I really like Korean horn beams. I've got a lot of those. Um, I think though, I think, well, I've got a bunch of chochibai from Michael. So I'm working on a bunch of chochibai, but I think the species that if I, if I was marooned on a desert, well, it couldn't be a desert island. It'd have to be an Arctic island, <laughs> but be if you're stuck large. on Vancouver Island. Yeah. So if I'm stuck on Vancouver Island, it would be a large. I just yeah. love, I love large. Okay. And I don't know if that comes from, uh, I think one of these first, uh, presentations with Ryan Neal that I went to with my BSOP was he had a beautiful collected large that he was trimming and it, it was just like it was about to bud out in the spring and these like little rosettes of this oh, is like oh my god this that's is the best time for large <laughs> I I know. it's got the little pom-poms oh, yeah exactly so i i'm probably way heavier invested in large than i should be you know it's like the, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, you know the investor that just can't stop putting money into this one stock because they just love it, you know. So <laughs> someday it's going to pay off. Yeah, hopefully there's not some you know larch disease that comes through my yard and takes uh, out my thousands of larch because yeah. I just love them. I love how bendy they are. I love mm -hmm. how you know they're they're a couple of mine are starting to bark up and they're just they just look cool. You know they got they got good fall color. They got really great spring appeal. They're a deciduous, so you know they just you get the you get the winter silhouette. I just love oh, them. Yeah. But yeah. I can't sell them to you, Evan. They won't live. So. Oh, no. They will not last here. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I have my own deciduous conifer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, Wait, which one is that, Evan? I, uh, I can't remember which one know. it is that you there's, like so much. There's only so many of them that grow in the world. Yeah. And I think yeah. I've got the other one. Uh, right. So uh, they will actually grow uh, bald cypress. That's the, that's the answer. They will actually yeah, 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 grow right. fairly well <laughs> for you. For the though. new listeners out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you haven't heard this show yet. If it's your first your first episode, I'm so sorry. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the bald cypress will grow in y'all's range. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We got those in Michigan. But Andrew's got one. A lot oh, of nice people one. growing them out there. Um, as far as is that something you would be interested in? Is growing Just, cypress? Don't steal my business, please. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, uh, partly, you know, I've. When I started out, I'm like, I'm going to grow everything. And then as I'm moving forward, it's like, you know, there's, there's some things that I'm willing to fight for, like the junipers that aren't really great in our area, but I'm going to fight for them because I like them. Mm -hmm. But then other things are like, I don't really love them and I'm not really willing to fight. They don't grow naturally. They're not just an easy grower here, you know? And yeah. so, 
Okay. Yeah. So they're all yours, man. They're all yours. <laughs> oh, thank Although, God. you know, my, <laughs> I'm a little swampy down there. So maybe I could, my grow field gets a little it's, swampy this time of year. So maybe I could just pluck some in the ground, you know. You'd probably little, do really well with them actually considering, yeah, yeah the amount of water that. Get their little knees, you know, poking out of my yeah. swamp down there. Uh, Pretty cute. We just, actually redid our pond, uh, our irrigation. It was quite the fiasco this last 24 mm. months, but but it's finally finished. And a wonderful byproduct of it is that it was apparently leaking a ton of water into my field. It, uh, uh, there was a bunch of like gopher and whatever tunnels all through the berm. And so I would oh. walk out there and it's like bubbling up you know, like a water feature at the park where it's got this, this four inch tall bubble, yeah. like 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. I've got 15 of those just bubbling up in the middle of my field, but those are all gone now. So. Hey, that's great. I, yeah. So I'm less of a swamp <laughs> than I used to be. So. Yeah. Is it, is your pond full now? Like, is it going to be able to yeah. hold all the water it's getting? Oh yeah. It's shockingly quick. Uh, it was a le- 11 acre feet, which an acre foot is 350,000 gallons. Wow. So it's a little over four million gallons. Whoa! Oh. No, oh, no big no. deal. Just a, couple so a little it's under four million, million gallons yeah. of water. It's fine. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and so that really gives us between <laughs> me and the vegetable farmers that gives us three years of water security uh, without having to fill back up. So if it doesn't rain yeah. in three years, we're good. So oh, yeah, we're well. we're totally fine. Uh, no <laughs> no problems. Yeah. Let's hope yeah. that this is this was your last summer with like water issues. Like from now yeah, on. Yeah. Let's let's hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at least for you know, three years. The windstorm uh, damaged the new workshop a little bit, but we don't have oh. to talk about that. But you know, no more, no more water drought issues in August, please. Yeah, yes, we're done with that one great. for the rest of my life. That'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had also an unbelievable summer here. I mean, uh-huh. is I mean, dry, so dry. We've just got pine trees and oak trees in our in our just native. <laughs> environment just all dying mm. that I, yeah. I wouldn't suspect that kind of thing to happen were you guys getting drought to the point where you could see woodline trees just dropping like like flies yeah especially during this uh you know we've had a couple of these heat domes um where mm-hmm. i think it was three years ago we got up to 115 for a week and yeah and then last year we had we had something similar and you know it's interesting the deciduous fared a lot better because they're moving water faster. They shed their leaves. Um, but yeah, we saw a lot of conifer dieback. I mean, we don't yeah. have a, we have, we have a Doug fir, which is, you know, kind of a soft conifer. The pines are the ones that really suffered. Uh, <laughs> saw a lot of pine, pine die. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Just not, tough. Not to, I mean, I'm kind of ignorant to the species that you guys can use in that range. Is Douglas fir something used in bonsai for y'all's range? You know, uh, I don't think a lot of people do Douglas fir, uh, partly because it's um, it typically doesn't grow in the high altitude, so it's not. Um, I know that uh, Todd Schaeffler collects some, and then Ryan's got his hands on some, and I don't know if the Backcountry Boys does some. Ra- uh, Randy has done some, but but they're just not. Uh, they don't have a high elevation as as much as other species, so so we don't get the Yamadori the same as other stuff. And then they're also um, I'm going to be really ignorant here. I don't really, I don't really understand, but there's something about, there's kind of a two year cycle with how you prune them. 
Uh, so it's a little more difficult and you can't just like, like a spruce, you can cut back to whatever, but you'll set a dug, dug for a way back if you do that. So yeah, you have to kind of like, Ryan's done a bunch of work on how to deal with them. So, so I think there's both a lack of good Yamadori material and a lack of understanding about how to, what to do with them that I think people shy away from them. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds complicated. And they're really weird, aggressive growers. Uh, they're, uh, they're pretty ugly. Like they, they just, <laughs> You know, once they slow down, once they get bark, they, they're really beautiful trees, but, but they're kind of like, uh, straight as an arrow and really like aggressively that way. So mm-hmm. I think you have to treat them super aggressively to get them to do anything you want to do. So yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, people are playing with, you know, big leaf maples, but it's maybe not a species a lot of people are going to attract to. So, you know, more trouble than it's worth in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. some would say that, but we... We have friends that are into big leaf. Well, maple. I mean, with the Doug fur, the big leaf maple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm on board with that one. I've, I've yeah. seen what that can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, big leaf maple. Wait, what is, which? Uh, it is a maple with a leaf the size of my face. Yeah. Oh, that maple. I thought you were talking about Acer rubrum. I was like, oh, no, no, no. no. That Don't throw shade at my, my favorite. Oh, maple. I would never throw shade at the Acer rubrum. No way. <laughs> right. No. Oh, Yeah. I could see that. I was like, who is messing around with the big leaf maple? Is that <laughs> is that realistic or that was just a joke? I'm just sitting here pondering about it. Um, I've seen I've seen crazier things though, but um I mean like I don't know. I've had people ask me about various species of larger leaves like that, but I think that's another conversation entirely. Yeah. Um just getting kind of sidetracked. It just threw my brain for a loop. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, because we're talking about Douglas fir, and I was because that, that was one of the things that uh, whenever I visited uh, Seattle, that was the first time I went to uh, the West Coast up there, uh, Pacific, uh, to go just go check it out. And I just noticed the love. There was like a reigning love for Douglas fir up there. Like they wrote books about it, and it was like, right, right, printed on T-shirts. <laughs> and I was just like, why not that one? But okay. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why, um, you know, I don't know what percentage of our native forest was dug for before, you know, logging and burning and everything, you know, what, what the native landscape looked like. But I, yeah, I think it was, it's almost exclusively planted for forest reforestation species for lumber at this point. But I think that's what was here before, you know, I think it was a kind of a 90% dug for, uh, you know, landscape in the, you know, in the lower elevations up to, you know, 4,000 feet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, them. there's a bunch of them. A Solomon person, they they're massive. I mean, bald cypresses can get one of the you know to the one of the larger sizes that we see here. Sometimes live oaks can kind of get big, but I mean the trees yeah. are so much bigger over there. Um, the trees here are very tall, for yeah, sure. Just yeah, just like intimidating tall. Yeah. It's like why, why do you <laughs> right. have to be that tall? That's, right, um, right, right. But you know. Um, so yeah, so left left coast as far as uh, I think the name is pretty obvious is what why you chose that option because you're much further uh, over um, right right but uh, well it's also because I'm a masochist and everyone says they think I'm saying west coast and so you know I've, I've got to just be you know, contrary you know and say no yeah. no no it's <laughs> left coast very clever right very clever right actually <laughs> yeah exactly um, i don't know how many emails i've gotten kicked back because people have written you know to to west coast phone site and um, you know so, no 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 it's not. <laughs> but anyway that's an aside yeah um so yeah uh what is the the, the potential 
future? What is your what is your dream? I guess you can say. I know that's yeah. a pretty broad question, but yeah, it's a broad question. What's it looking I, like? Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know. Again, if I crystal ball to fifteen years, I'm producing like super high quality material that people. I don't know. I I want to develop a trust thing where where you know someone could call me sight unseen and say, "Hey, I really need a nice large forest. Send me something." You know, and then it's like, you know, that they know that everything I would send out would be of high quality material, and you mm-hmm. know, so really trying to develop that reputation, trying to you know really um, break into the quality game. I wanted you know I have to do volume just because of the nature of the business that I'm in, so I have right. to do volume, but but trying to skate that fine edge between volume and quality. Um, but then the other thing I'm really super passionate about is teaching and especially teaching growing technique. Um, I'm starting a series of, uh, study groups. So I've got one, uh, here on the farm and then I've got, um, a group in Ann Arbor. Thank you, Carmen. And you're welcome. I've got a group in Birmingham, hopefully that is, um, those three have gelled so far. But I'm maybe looking for one or two more where it's, you know, three or four times a year people are going out and the focus is a really from seed to show. We're really taking trees and we're committing to working together on these same trees for the next 10 years. And, you know, I would love to see them get into regional or even national shows. Yep. And just taking, you know, let's take the first steps, these first critical steps with the trees and do that, do that work right. And then take the next critical step and do those right. And really like try to train a group of people. And, you know, I've talked to Michael about this, talked to Jonas about this, talked to Daisaku Namoto son about this, that, you know, it's, it's the hobbyist backyard weekend warrior that really has the time and attention to put towards producing really high quality trees, especially, (laughs) I feel like, especially if they have, you know, the guidance of a professional or the guidance of a club or the guidance of, you know, a study group working together, mm-hmm. you know, it's under that guidance that those people have the time to deal with, you know, 50 really good trees instead of 5,000 really good trees, you know? And so mm-hmm. really like acknowledging my kind of like my place in that where I'm, I'm producing volume, but probably can't get to the pinnacle of quality, but I can help other people get to that pinnacle of quality in their own trees. And then, you know, see the whole, see the whole uh growing industry in the u.s you know develop that way yeah yeah so that's that's awesome that you're not just trying to keep it all for your own i mean that's you know it's awesome to go around and teach people how to actually grow good quality bonsai like that um and we we thank you for that for you know wanting to go out and and share that that's yeah absolutely yeah it's something i'm super passionate about i really want you know i want to just kind of not gate gatekeep information I have. I think, uh, you know, I think people feel left out sometimes with like, well, the professionals, they all know the secret tricks, you know, and they're, they're telling us only half of it so that we can't actually make <laughs> the right elixir, you know, spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> there's no tricks in some ways, in some ways. Yeah. There's not tricks in some ways. It's just buckle down hard work. And, but in other ways there's like, yeah, there are some things that we can show you that can, yeah could really make your life a lot easier or, you know, you can learn to batch, you know, this is something like if you have one black pine, then 
on your bench, then you're just going to love that poor little thing to death, you know. But if you had 20 on your bench, then you can like, okay, I'm going to do five this way and five that way. And I'm going to try to repot into this soil or repot into that soil. I'm going to use a basket from this one and a pot on that one. Or I'm going to put this one on the ground, you know. So you can, as you like up your numbers and your, your uh, you know, your iterations, you can have more ideas about, okay, well, let's do some this way and some that way. And then, and then in a couple of years, you can say, okay, this really worked and that didn't, you know, then we can kind of like start to refine what te- techniques actually do what we want them to do. Um, so for someone who is aspiring to start their own field, do you have any advice from some of the things that you've experienced thus far that you would like to throw out there? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, just going way back to everyone gets overwhelmed. And so, um, I think even for myself, it's unwise of me to think that I'm not going to get overwhelmed. And so trying to start slowly, trying to figure out what that, you know, try to imagine what the work on that thing is going to look like in five years. And so, you know, tr- let's not plant 5,000 trees in the first year. Let's let's figure out how we can get 5,000 trees in the ground over a 10-year span or whatever it is, you know, whatever the numbers are. But but I think, yeah, really like trying to establish your goal and then working towards that in a more metered way rather than just dumping, going whole hog on it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, the other thing that I, and this is just my lack of nursery uh, or plant propagation stuff is, Luckily, in the Portland metro area or the the Western Oregon, we have a ton of resources around us. And I think it took me a, a year or two to like realize that, oh, I have an agronomist that lives up the street. I have a disease problem. You know, I'm going to call him up and get his advice, even if I have to pay for that. You know, I had some, uh, I had some serious nu- nutrient problems in, in the spring of this year, so uh, nine months ago. Like really everything was yellow and just looked like doo-doo. And luckily I, I knew this guy. So I called him up and he said, well, let's get a soil test, a water test, a nutrient test. And uh, then when those all come back, we'll talk. And, you know, so it cost me maybe like $250 or so to do these tests. But what came back was that all my nutrient was off the chart on the low side. Like it didn't even register. The nitrogen didn't register. The potassium didn't register. The, you know. The phosphorus didn't didn't register, and so he's like, "Okay, what do you? What's your fertilizer? Show me your fertilizer." And and so we ultimately went from I was doing you know this one x fertilizer one time a week, and he's like, "You need to be doing a three x fertilizer every day." So I fifteen xed my fertilizer regimen, and in two and a half weeks, it's just like the most beautiful garden. Like it's just like everything is green and lush and growing. I've got huge extensions on things like. Okay, we need to ramp this back because I don't want, you know, one foot long internodes. <laughs> yeah, the the transformation of your trees after that was was crazy. I remember seeing them kind of yellowing and then, you know, just short the next time I was out there, it was like, oh, everything's fine now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was kind of like, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to get a, a job in town and do something else because I obviously <laughs> can't do this, you know. But, but yeah, mm-hmm. you know, dumping the money into these tests and... And he's like, you know, in an ideal world, you're going to be testing three or four times a year. Obviously, you may not have the finances for that, but but at least any time we make a big change, let's do let's do some testing, you know. And there's national testing uh, for you know plant material, and so yeah, I think that that's something just to kind of get an idea of like what's what's in our soil mix in our native landscape. What what kind of fertilizer are we really putting on? You know, getting testing instruments because uh, there's testing in- instruments you can use either pH meters or EC meters. 
So I think a lot of people just follow the package instructions on fertilizer instead of saying, okay, well, let's get a, let's get an EC meter and let's figure out, you know, I'm going to do 600 EC every time I put it on and I'm not going to just guess, well, you know, one tablespoon per gallon, but I'm actually going to, you know, buy this $23 meter. And then I, and then I know exactly what's going on. You know, I don't okay. have to guess. And then if, you know, if things look weak or whatever, I can up it a little bit and see if that changes, you know, that kind of stuff is like really get some, some of those things that will empower you to not just be shooting in the dark, but actually getting an idea of what you're doing, you know, and the results that's, that's creating. Um, and how many, so try not to overwhelm yourself. And, uh, as far as selection of species and also number of plants, I mean, what, in your opinion, what's manageable number of plants? Just real quick. I know it's kind of a, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think, I think if you're doing something, you know, you're doing just a one or two touch, uh, you know, we're taking the tree from a seed to, a, a number three or four, yeah. I think you can probably, one person could probably manage, you know, three to four to maybe even 5,000 trees. Um, <laughs> but that's just to, you know, yeah. it just, it exponentially gets to be crazy, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, my my plan and i'm not quite there yet is that you know at, at no point will i have more than five thousand trees on the property and some of those are going to be one-year-old seedlings that just don't need anything but water you know and yeah. and uh as as i get older i'm trimming the crop down so by the fifth year i only have 20 percent of what i started with you know from from five years ago and so mm-hmm. my I, I don't continue to accumulate stuff that has to do you know, I don't have 1,000 five-year-olds and 1,000 four-year-olds and 1,000 three-year-olds, you know. Right. I've got 3,000 one-year-olds and 2,000 two-year-olds and, you know, 1,000 whatever, you know, whatever the numbers are. But yeah. yeah, but I'm really, you know, as the refining gets more difficult, as the repotting gets more difficult, as the weeding gets more difficult, I'm really sh- shaving the crop down. I'm, I'm, you know, pruning the flock, getting, yeah. getting to be less and less black pines have to decandle or whatever the thing is, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. So you heard that start, start with, uh, at minimum, John's telling you start 5,000 trees. 5, That's trees right. Start there. Minute. The first year you should be, if you're not planting 5,000 trees, you are not committed to this art form. Yep. And get out then, now. then we go from there. When you get 20,000 trees in the ground, call me and then we can have a conversation. <laughs> I don't talk to anyone that has less than 20,000 trees in their yard. Oh man. <laughs> We're, we're on another planet right now with that. But. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have, a, there's a nursery, there's a commercial, uh, <laughs> you know, box store nursery, commercial nursery across the street. And they're probably on 30 acres and it's just 30 acres of, oh, it just yeah. looks like hedgerow, you know? Yeah. And I don't know how tree. many, and it's all burlap bagged in the ground. Isn't and it? they, they probably have a crew of maybe six or eight people. Oh, wow, that's but impressive. yeah, I just, I look over at theirs. It's funny. Cause I, you know, I, I mostly, I mean, I have an acre and a half, but I, I'm only on about a third of that, mm-hmm. maybe even a fourth of that. So I'm really, you know, I really am kind of like a big backyard sort of size right now. But yeah, I look over at their 40 acres of just, you know, boxwoods, you know, in a row, and they're all like topiary pruned. You know, they're ready to go to Home Depot or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. the little topiary pruning and their little, you know, the star you know how they prune these like the ball 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 you know on top of each mm-hmm. other you know to go into people's front yards you know, it's pretty funny to look over there at the nursery and see 
Oh yeah, they're just growing that thing in the ground, you know, and pruning it. Um, yeah, I definitely don't want to get overwhelming like that. You know, and the other thing, I mean, I have a part-time help to, you know, he mostly waters, fertilizes weeds. Um, and I love, I love like having him around, training him. I love being able to finally get to like take some time off every once in a while because I'm not having to water all the time. <laughs> yeah. But like, really, I want to be the one to do all the artistic stuff. You know, I don't want to just train someone else to like, here, you're going to bend 500 black pines, go, you know, it's like, I want to put the bends in. I want to be at very least, I want to be looking over one person's shoulder and, and like uh-huh. training them. You know, I don't want to just have a team of eight people that's just like, we're going to crank out 5,000, you know, chimpaku this week, you know? And yeah, that's where I get in trouble with it. Yeah. <laughs> you get in trouble with that. And then like the quality just goes down because it's like, exactly. I, you know, I can't watch when wires cutting in. I can't, I can't keep on top of when, you know, the thing, it goes from a thumb and then for some reason you, you're in the ground one year, it's nothing happens. You're in the ground a second year, you start having this like ramping up. You're in the ground third year and, you know, you go from thumb size branch to somehow it's your arm and then the next year it's your thigh. It's like, golly, what is this thing doing? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it wants to be a real boy, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> but it's like yeah, it wants have, to grow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wants to grow. And if you have too many of those, like. You just have to, yeah. Right, yeah. It's like you get you get overwhelmed. Well, the other thing too that I I've thought was has been really good. Um, well, useful for for oh my gosh, useful for me at least is that when you run some of your classes or volunteer work days, I mean, people are working on your stuff, so they're helping you with your work, but learning at the same time, and you can kind of watch everything. So it's like it's just this mutually beneficial thing that you're doing, which I think is a really good way to teach people and get people involved, but also help you get your work done. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, I think, uh, I, I kind of like struggle with like, oh, do I want to do a bunch of volunteer work and have people come out and work for free? I'm a, I'm a for-profit company, you know, and it just mm-hmm. feels disingenuous. But at the same time, like, I think people want the knowledge and they want mm-hmm. to, you know, they mm-hmm. want to work around other bonsai people that are excited about stuff. And so, you know, again, like who am I to deny them of that? And if, if I can teach them something during that time together, then that's great. And then if we, mm-hmm. you know, if we can lift some of the burden off of me so that I can, you know, produce something else or I can focus on this other thing then that, you know, that's super helpful to me. And if I can be teaching at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's that's I can feel that because I mean I find the teaching aspect to be most fulfilling to me and I'm you know getting to that point it's it's much more re- it, it feels much more rewarding you know uh, mm-hmm. so absolutely yeah, yeah exactly so um but yeah uh let's uh I know you wanted to mention something else that you have going on pretty soon here and you wanted to do a little promotion for your uh for your website y'all about to launch something well yeah so we you know um. I think if people saw my website, they would be pretty shocked if they came out to the yard to see what I'm actually doing because it's not very representative. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's very different. The, the okay. Instagram is probably a little more representative of the work that I'm doing or the product that I have. I think I think people just see the website. Mostly, what I sell on the website, I do have some growing supplies. It, I worked it, with the I worked with the company in China to develop my grow bags to my specs. So they're a little wider than most grow bags, a little shorter to give, you know, a little wider Nambari, not a deep tree. Um, yeah, I've got some specialized growth stuff. I've got baskets. Everybody loves the Finifil, uh 
pond baskets for growing. I've got three different shapes of those. So yeah, there's some stuff on the website and then seedlings. Um, you know, the, the problem with growing trees and wanting to develop good materials is that I have to have, uh, I have to, I have to figure out how to find five years worth of income. And so that's, that's a really valuable way that, you know, I'm producing more seedlings than I can produce. And so I'm selling those. And so that's a really valuable way to like support, um, the work that I'm doing and just as a stopgap to be able to, to help with that. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, so, so that's, uh, we're, we're just now getting into seedling. I'm going to start shipping mid February. So just a couple of weeks, start, start shipping out stuff. Um, yeah, a really good way to support us is, would be to buy seedlings or, or supplies from the website. And then I've really started doing a bunch of Instagram sales. So I know everybody's done on Instagram, but uh, it's a really good way. It's kind of like uh, for anyone that's older than 35, the QVC style of television where you've got the, you know, <laughs> the Vanna White is showing off the, the you know, the Casio watch and then you, know, you call in. Um, so it's it's really similar to that, if you can imagine. Um, Are you Vanna you know, White? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I Vanna White. The, if you want to see, uh, you know, a middle-aged man from Texas Vanna White some trees, get on the Instagram sales. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so two or three times a year, we just, uh, I, that's the best way that I can find to put out the material that's, quote, ready uh, to, to, to sell to the public. The, the more mature material, it's a good way to do that. And so, yeah, that's a great way to, to support us. And so, yeah, just sign up on the Instagram. And if you don't do Instagram, reach out to me. And, uh, you know, I sell a lot of trees otherwise too. But but that's a good way. Because the other thing I, you know, I don't want to complain all the time. But I, I really don't love to ship trees. I want to be bending trees and even yeah. weeding trees. I don't really love, like, the packing and shipping part of it. But I'm a one-man operation. And so um, I can coerce my children sometimes to help. And my <laughs> wife helps a lot too. But it's mostly just me. So, um, so I, I like to, to, the Instagram sales lets me put people into like a smaller window of that work, you know, so I can, instead of being distracted every week to have one box, I can, I can push everybody okay. into one season of like, oh, I've got 50 boxes to do. And that's, that's a lot easier for me to pull off. So yeah, the Instagram sales, it's nice because I, I, I can like work out a bunch of material, get it out there for people, and then I can ship it all and, and it's gone. Okay. Uh, so that's really great. Um, I think cool. I kind of stumbled, a way of doing it, I kind of stumbled into Nice. Yeah. So that's uh com. You can go check that out at. Um, and I mean, I'm looking around on your website. I see you have some other things. Like you said, you have the felt bags and uh, you also sell pottery. Um, I was just kind of meandering through this real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working with a Japanese potter. I, I uh, met him sort of through Jonas and then started working with him and bringing in some of his stuff. Uh, he, he's I uh, think a pretty well, pretty unknown potter in the U.S., but does some really interesting work. So, yeah, yeah, I really like to, the pots that you've got. Yeah, it's really loosey goosey. I really like his work. Real, uh, it's pretty non traditional. It's mostly hand thrown, and uh, but yeah, it's got a really wabi sabi feel. Most of it's kind of non bonish, mm-hmm. uh, you know, styling. Uh, but yeah, really, really nice work. Really like his stuff, and yeah, we're happy to support him. Yeah. And then, you know, I do some classes here on the farm, but then, yeah, if anybody wants to, if they're interested in this, uh, these growing study groups, if you want to plug into one of the established ones, let me know. Or if you, you know, if, if you want to, I, I kind of rely on, I think most, mostly study groups sort of rely on one person heading up and finding four other friends to get together. So, if you know, if you want to pull something together in your area, then, you know, reach out to me and uh, I can put what resources I have into doing that. But yeah, I'd love to, I think I've got capacity for maybe one or two more 
kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of looking for a Midwest or a South and then maybe a Far East Coast. <laughs> um, something. So will you be, uh, I know I don't, I didn't get clarity on it. Will you be traveling to those locations? Yeah, that's, I, you know, I am thinking about potentially doing a digital one. So if anyone's interested yeah. in that, maybe hey, that's a good stop gap for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I was looking at my calendar coming up. I, I, I want to teach a lot more this year, but I was calendaring out my year and it's like, oh gosh, I'm going to be gone a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so it's, it's like, a, you know, cat 22 of like, I want to be out there. I want to be shaking hands. I want to be meeting people. I want to be getting this good information out to people, but it's also like every day that I'm out of there, I'm not in here, you know? And so, so yeah, maybe a digital stopgap is good, but, but mostly, yeah, I want these to be in person. Cause I think it's pretty critical to just be able to really look over people's shoulders and, you know, write on a whiteboard in a way that I, I think the, the learning in person is a, a little bit different, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, the zoom thing is a stopgap. That's pretty good too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, is there any uh, closing remarks that you would like to say, uh, or any any just spare advice you got hanging around <laughs> before we? <laughs> no, wrap I really up? appreciate I really appreciate being able to come on and just kind of talk about what I you know I love I I love you guys' podcast and just thank you. It's a lot of fun to you know we have multiple really good bonsai podcasts now, um, and I I try to listen to all of them while I'm doing bonsai and it's a lot of fun to just like see the different you know, the different feel that each of them has, the different culture that each of them has. And yeah, I really like y'all. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Um, And we don't want to be the only ones. So if you guys are out there listening and thinking about starting your own podcast show about bonsai, please do. Absolutely. Want to create a network. competition. What are you talking about? No, No. there's no competition in bonsai. I know. know. Only at the, only at the big shows that we actually (laughs) display at. (laughs) Right, right, right. No, uh, but no, we, we need more stuff like this. We need more growers. We need more podcasters. We need more education stuff just going around to, you know, because we're, we're, we're entering this, this gap, uh, or exiting that gap of, uh, of information, uh, in my opinion. So yeah, exactly. Really starting to supply, um, starting yeah. to see some really good, great stuff come up. Uh, but yeah, uh, just, you know, just to put it out there, uh, one more time, you can go over to leftcoastboneside.com to go check out John, uh, check out all of his offerings that he's got. And uh, like you like he said, uh, and contacting you, just go on the website or would you prefer email for those classes? No, you can contact me or PM me through Instagram or uh, not much on Facebook, but yeah. Okay. It's under the same name, Left Coast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. And then uh, as for as for the other uh, un- uh, little thing, uh, crew, you know, you can go over to underhillboneside.com, check out what I have offering. Uh, I will be doing a Yamadori like seminar slash Zoom call thing uh, for the Southeast range here. So I'll be teaching nice. people how to pull, uh, you know, bald cypresses, elm trees, and maples and warm beams from my range. So that's a nice little thing. You guys can check that out if you like. Um, and then I have a Yamadori excursion, but it's booked. So um, anybody that was interested in traveling for that, I do have a waiting list currently too. So it's, yeah, it, it might be a little difficult uh, maybe next year for those that are uh, interested in that. Uh, and then go check out uh, our YouTube channel. I'm trying to put together a new video. I'm hoping to have it up by the time this episode releases. So uh, yeah, that should be good. And then for you, Carmen, uh, where should they go to check out your stuff? You can find me on Instagram or Facebook at To Becoming Bonsai, and you can check out the Purple Pot Society, which is the National Women's Bonsai Group. Um, 
purplebotsociety.com. Yeah. Uh, we are working on some new stuff for 2024, so stay tuned. Well, I thought it was .org. .org. You're right. It is. Oh, man. Here's, here's me. We're a nonprofit. We are a .org. My bad. Yeah, Hold there you on. Go. Yep, no, yep, 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 yep. I'm looking at my own business card, purplepotsociety.org. There you go. <laughs> oh, boy. That's okay. I've heard you say it dozens of times, and I was like, wait, that sounded different. Yeah, we're an org. You're right. <laughs> at least somebody's uh, paying attention. Yep. And then uh, we sometimes have uh, Mike. You can go over to KetsuneBonesai.com to go check out Mike Lane's stuff. He's a Florida guy doing his Florida things. Uh, he has classes and offerings Florida in man. his range. Florida man. Florida, Florida man, man teaches bonsai. Florida uh, but yeah, so yeah, go over there and check out Mike's stuff. But uh, yeah, this has been good. Uh, thanks for hanging out, John, and we'll uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one and, uh, and appreciate you hanging out. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs>